Contra is Contra is nuanced. Contra, Contra is, is transgressive. Good trouble. Contra, Contra is, is collaborative. Contra is a podcast. Is a space for thinking about design critically. Contra is subversive. Contra is texture. You are listening to Solidarity Chats, a special section of the Contra podcast on disability, design justice, and the life world. These episodes, recorded during the COVID-19 pandemic, focus on disability, eugenics, and mutual aid. We're hoping to capture some of the conversations that disabled people and our allies are having about issues such as healthcare infrastructure, medical triage, eugenics, and technology as it is unevenly distributed across the population. These episodes are also going to come out at a different rate than the regular Contra episodes. So please make sure to subscribe on Google, Apple, or Stitcher so that you don't miss any. This is Amy Hamrai, and I'm so pleased to be here with Embry Wood Owen, who is a researcher on disability in public space and an organizer based in Philadelphia. Welcome, Embry. Thank you so much for having me. The reason that I invited you onto the podcast today is that um, you are organizing a mutual aid network in Philadelphia. And so I wanted to talk to you about some of the lessons and challenges and opportunities and stuff that have come up with that. So do you want to say a little bit about the network that you're organizing? Sure. Um, so the network that I'm um, co-organizing now um, in Philadelphia, and for those who know Philly, our network um, is primarily reaching folks in um, Center City and South Philadelphia. It's called Mutual Aid Philly. Um, and um, I started organizing, um, really just talking with um, some other folks in disability community um, in early March um, before COVID-19 um, had really come here and, and um, had much of a, a presence here in, in Philly. Um, and just talking about, you know, how we might be able to support each other in community when this did um, hit here. Um, and I was really um, inspired by uh, Leia Lakshmi Pipenza Samarasina's idea of um, care webs that they write about in their book, um, Care Web um, Dreaming Disability Justice. Um, so I, I wasn't even super familiar with the, um, the uh, history um, outside of disability community of mutual aid um, at that point, um, but I really wanted to start thinking about how we could, um, within disability, take care of each other um, as COVID hit. Um, and the idea was really open-ended. It was around asks and offers. Um, and I think, you know, um, disabled and chronically ill folks, we often have both. Like we often have things that um, we need and, and we're looking for, but we also often have um, things that we can support with, um, which I think a lot of mutual aid organizing kind of places folks into like one category or the other. It's very binary. Um, and I was interested in something that was a little more fluid. And um, eventually it just started to grow outwards. Um, 
I um, started reaching out to other folks um, and who were disabled or chronically ill and allies of disability community who I didn't know personally and started kind of linking folks together who um, might be able to support each other based on asks and offers. Um, and then um, it really got to a point where I realized um, this is something where we needed, you know, more organizers at the table. Um, I definitely could not do it alone, which I learned very quickly. Um, and so I linked up with some other organizers and we're now um, running a mutual aid network um, within that you know, geographic area that I mentioned, and we're actually reaching a much broader cross-section of people. So um, there's a lot of disabled and chronically ill um, folks that we're reaching, but um, where we are geographically, um, we have a lot of neighbors who um, are Latinx, um, who are immigrant, um, many of whom are undocumented, um, just kind of based on the information that they're sharing about not receiving any um, of the stimulus um, offerings from the federal government. Um, and so for me, one of the things that's been really exciting about this is um, we're organizing at intersections that just like typically never happened before COVID. Like disability organizing usually happens over here and then like immigrant organizing, like undocumented organizing typically happens over there. And like <clears throat> now, um, a lot, COVID is kind of breaking down a lot of these barriers because folks have um, needs and, and concerns that are common. Um, so that's been super exciting for me. Um, it's also just been really um, challenging, uh, you know, running um, a mutual aid network with other organizers is challenging and it's constantly kind of toggling between the macro and the micro. Um, we're thinking about, you know, how do we meet immediate needs in the community, but then also how do we build political and social power together for the long haul? Because um, the mutual aid can help folks and, and connect folks on the day-to-day, -day, but we also want to be pushing for you know, larger structural change that needs to come out of this. The way that you write about access um, and the way that Astra Taylor writes about democracy in her book, um, Democracy May Not Exist, But We'll Miss It When It's Gone. Um, it's this idea that like these things are like evolving, they're never finished, they're never perfect. It's like these processes that are ongoing. Um, and I think that's one of the really exciting things about organizing, but especially right now is that um, we're just constantly evolving and, and trying new things with the community to um, try to better support each other. Mm, yeah, I love all of those connections. Um, so going back to the beginning of how your network was organized, it sounds like it really came out of a disability focus, right? And then it kind of um, expanded or built solidarities with other groups. Is that right? That's right. Were there existing disability networks and communities that were um, that you were kind of like calling in or that had, um, you know, that you had had experience with in the past and developing skills around mutual aid that this was based on? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I have definitely looked to um, organizers in other cities um, who have done really amazing um, 
you know, interdependent um, solidarity work um, in the past, um, you know, based on uh, in disability community and thinking about um, the power to live movement that happened um, in the Bay Area last year with the PG&E wildfires, um, the Disability Justice Culture Club, which was a part of that in the Bay Area. Um, and so for, for me, a lot of that was um, kind of a, a motivating force and a, a, a modeling force with which to work from. Um, here in Philadelphia, um, I would say that, you know, there are a lot of, um, there's a lot of informal disability community that um, I've drawn from during this time. Um, there are some um, kind of larger disability um, organizations, um, some of whom we've been able to reach and try to work with, others of which um, I think are operating with more of a like a social service lens and i think that's one of the big challenges for mutual aid is to um you know kind of step out of that you know social service delivery model and into something that is more generative more community-based more interdependent um and that's uh you know it's an evolution it's ongoing like it's that's hard. Yeah, um, I'm really struck by the way that so many of the mutual aid networks that are popping up around the country have been started by disabled people and are really run by disabled people. And um, here in Nashville, where I also organize a mutual aid network um, with a bunch of other disabled and non-disabled people, when we first got started, doing this work, we were reaching out to different cities and kind of getting a sense of how they were organizing their infrastructure and stuff. And it was kind of funny because in almost every case, it was like, oh, hello, fellow disabled person. It, mm. you, are, you are doing this work. Um, and that's not to say that non-disabled people aren't doing it either, but there is something about um, kind of the ways that we typically operate that kind of uh, help us slide into this a little bit more and the models that we have that we look to. Um, for example, the Disability Justice Culture Club and um, historical examples of mutual aid and stuff. Um, so I think that's all really interesting. Um, something that you mentioned earlier that I also wanted to go back to is this idea that within these mutual aid networks, now there are solidarities being forged that weren't happening necessarily before. And you gave the example of solidarities between disabled and undocumented folks. So do you wanna say more about that? Yeah, and just one other thing I wanna add about um, what you just mentioned is, um, I have thought a lot about, you know, what is it that, um, that, makes it so that, you know, disabled people are, um, you know, ready or or comfortable to, you know, do mutual aid work, um, exist in, in this, like, space that is mutual aid. And um, I've spoken a lot about this with one friend who also identifies as disabled um, in particular here in Philly. And one of the things that's come up for us is the fact that many disabled folks, um, the two of us included, just have a lot of experience um, asking for help. And like we're comfortable with that because we have been in situations where we have 
had to ask for help before and we have had to kind of exist in that space of vulnerability and we've known that our community has like been there to do that for us um and so i think kind of like we have a, almost like a pre-existing trust in these systems um and a pre-existing understanding of how essential they are so um i don't know there's there's something to me there about um disabled folks many disabled folks being um already like quite expert at asking for help and communicating needs um, and, and communicating, you know, offers and boundaries and, and all of that. Um, yeah, in terms of the solidarities between undocumented folks and, and disabled folks and allies working in our community, um, it feels really like new and emerging because it's something that's, um, you know, we're, just kind of started seeing in the coming weeks uh, or in the, in the, the previous weeks. Um, but um, I, you know, a, a lot of the um, folks that we are um, talking to and, um, you know, providing linking mutual aid um, with um, are, um, undocumented um some of whom some of them have you know disabled uh, are disabled themselves or, or have um household members who who are um, disabled um and then we have other community members who um who identify as as disabled but aren't necessarily part of an undocumented or an immigrant community um and um we're working in kind of new and emerging ways with um, organizations that um, work with um, the disability community, like our local Center for Independent Living, um, but we're also working with organizations that do a lot of immigrant organizing. And so I think that, I don't know like where this is gonna go, um, but I feel excited because just the fact that these communities are starting to kind of like coalesce in the same network and the organizations are starting to like connect in the same network um and we're starting to like understand common needs and and experiences in this time um i feel really excited that we could start to build organizing power together um and um this just feels like a, a time where um that's finally happening and it feels you know quite unprecedented. Mm, yeah. Um, it's helpful to hear that. Uh, and I think it's kind of part of a pattern that we may start tracing with mutual aid moving forward um, because, you know, mutual aid itself is happening at an unprecedented rate because of mm -hmm. COVID. Um, and in my community as well, we're finding those solidarities taking shape. It's like there are people who are part of our networks who show up to weekly calls, um, who are part of different community organizations, like activist organizations, some of which are nonprofits and some of which are more grassroots um, that don't usually share space. And they are there to explore what solidarity means together. Um, and we are, you know, we're organizing care and 
um, mutual aid, but we're also doing political education together where we're studying, you know, what does mutual aid mean and um, how has this concept shifted and evolved? And so the impact of that is that it, all of those broader struggles are also then informed by these interactions. And it's been kind of cool to see um, how what solidarity looks like as opposed to the sort of what you were describing before is like the social service or even like charity model of like we're gonna get these resources together and we're gonna coordinate and distribute them and have like social workers or caseworkers like that kind of model which is you know that's a, an important thing too um but just kind of like these more informal things like people you know, putting out a call for translation and getting translators that they didn't know before who are then joining immigrant rights association or like immigrant rights and refugee rights organizations and, um, you know, folks like coming into disability identity that didn't necessarily have that before, even though they were disabled because they're, you know, suddenly around so many disabled people doing leadership. And so um, it's really cool to watch that stuff unfold. And I'm kind of, I'm excited to also know what some of the possibilities of it may be um, and some of the strategizing that we can do around it. Yeah, I think um, for me, I, I feel at times, um, it, you know, day to day, I, I kind of vacillate between feeling um, tired and, and overwhelmed because, um, you know, the needs that we are seeing and that we're talking to folks about are, are great. Um, we're, you know, talking to, especially last week, um, we were talking to a lot of folks who were very, very stressed about paying rent and, um, you know, mutual aid is, um, not designed to pay people's rent. That needs to be something that is, um, tackled on a structural, you know, governmental scale. And I think mutual aid is really powerful to talk with people about their rights and their opportunities and their, their options for how to, you know, negotiate with their landlord and um, think about, um, you know, how do they prioritize. Um, but then I, th I also think about the, um, the opportunities and, and the possibilities long-term coming out of this building political and social power together, um, having communities work together in, in solidarity that um, otherwise wouldn't have. Even just what we're doing in mutual aid networks across the country, redistributing wealth from folks who are well off getting stimulus checks from the government, you know, many of us being white to folks who are undocumented and getting nothing like that's extremely powerful um and feels you know very generative and exciting so um highs and lows yeah yeah for <laughs> sure um another thing that you know you mentioned earlier um the concept of care webs from leah lakshmi piepsna samarasinha and something i've been thinking about is that this is a moment in which a lot of the relationship building skills that are necessary to really get mutual aid going are being 
taught by disabled people because, you know, we're always engaging in these various access intimacies. Um, and also a lot of people who have no uh, exposure or experience with this in the past are like understanding that there are life and death stakes to learning these skills. And so I wonder if you have any thoughts about that or any like examples of ways that people are learning to build relationships within your network that are totally new to them or that are different than the types of relationships that would have been built before. Mm. Yeah, I really appreciate you asking that because um, <laughs> so funny i um i left my job right before uh this really took off um for many reasons um you know i was really wanting to um, engage in a period of um, research and exploration about how i could be doing work that was more aligned with my values and was also more directly connected to disability community um, and I was in a financially privileged position enough to take a couple of months off. Um, and um, it's it's just so funny doing this work, you know, talking to people every day and, and training people and, and um, you know, leading this kind of work because it feels very natural. Uh, like it, it's tiring, but it, it feels natural because I think a lot of the skills that we build in disability community around, you know, not assuming um, and um, listening to others closely and um, drawing boundaries and um, patience. Um, those are things that are just really essential for this work. Um, and so those are things, you know, when I train people who are going to help us um, coordinate requests that come in um, through our system and match people, um, those are things that I, I talk about in addition to the origins of mutual aid and, um, you know, how mutual aid comes out of communities of color and disabled communities. I talk about, you know, these these skills of, of active listening um, and, and the importance of, of drawing boundaries um, and the importance of kind of being patient um, with folks and just meeting folks, I think, where they are. Um, you know, people come to us in a lot of different um, states. You've got a, maybe a volunteer who um, is really wanting to help, but then, um, needs maybe needs some help kind of understanding the like flexibility and malleability that mutual aid requires um, or you're talking to someone who's out of food and needs food and is like stressed because they're hungry um, and that's a reality and so I think that um, it's exciting to be in a time when um, and in a, in a network and in a position when like the skills that we use in community every day and like are, are part of our lives um, are really like exactly what is needed for this time. Um, and I think that's kind of like 
a microcosm of much of what's happening for disability community right now um, on a on a larger scale. Yeah, for sure. Those are such great examples, um, and those are the kinds of things that you know don't get as much attention or fanfare, you know, in like the news articles about mutual aid and things like that, that are often more focused on the material dimensions of it. Um, you know, one really amazing thing that's happening right now is that people are rewriting their social scripts around how to interact with other people and they're learning to ask for what they need and negotiate what they need and all of these things that are so much a part of our lives as disabled people, um, but are not often valued or they're treated as sort of like devalued forms of care work or they're just sort of, um, you know, not viewed as like productive forms of communication necessarily. And so um, they're not given as much significance and credit. So I'm really glad that we have those examples from you. Thank you. Yeah. And I, I really, you know, I appreciate you bringing that up because I think that um, so often, even in the mutual aid, context which has roots in our community has roots in in communities of color and other communities that have um, long been denied you know what we need from the state it is hard at times to hold on to norms and values of disability community you know when you're getting it, it can be easy to shift into a mindset of productivity or you know um, focusing on, you know, how much we got done or how much money is coming in or things like that instead of like, or just, you know, going to solution, I think, um, when oftentimes, you know, we, we don't have the solution. Um, the solution kind of demands a larger um, political and, and social response. Um, and so sitting with someone, being able to engage in that space, um, you know, and say like, yeah, I'm, I'm here and your, your neighbors are here in solidarity with you. Like we are all dealing with the same thing. Um, even though we can't solve it, um, is like, that's also valuable. Um, talking to three people, having three, you know, meaningful, helpful conversations with folks, even if you have a list of like 20 people you need to call, like that's, that's, valuable that's quote-unquote productive mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. are there ways that within your mutual aid network people um are there any like strategies or methods for building relationships amongst yourselves like within the group of organizers that you think are interesting and want to share yeah so um we have two to three people who um, shift together every day um, on our requests. So um, basically they work together in a two hour block um, to look at requests that have come in and contact people. And um, we, they realized, um, or, you know, I guess we realized collectively after the first week that like, it just, it works better and it also like feels a lot better um, if you are with the other person on Zoom or FaceTime or whatever um, while you're working um, because there's the ability to like kind of coordinate together, but then there's also the ability to support each other if you are like, off, you just get off the phone with someone and it's really intense. Um, so 
the folks who do like shift coordination um, or matching, um, they each day um, they'll um, that the pair of people will be on a, a Zoom or FaceTime together. Um, and we also, um, that group of, of um, matchers or coordinators, we meet together um, every two weeks to kind of talk about like, what's working well, like what's not working, like how can we um, address those things and also build on the things that are working well. Um, and then in terms of the organizers who, you know, the seven or eight of us across the group who are kind of running things in terms of um, operations and outreach and, and matching. Um, we meet once a week and um, I think we've kind of loosely been operating by a consensus model, but I want to like shift even more deliberately towards that. Um, I think that um, a consensus model is really powerful for both like accountability and buy-in um, and um, yeah I've, I've sort of gone back and forth on like should we do more like remote like fun stuff should we have like a remote happy hour and like the truth of the matter is like as someone whose like brain and eyes are constantly tired I'm like I don't really want to go to a remote happy hour, so I don't really want to create one. But um, I think what we're going for is a sense of um, generative organizing and a sense of, you know, if people want to connect in different ways, um, they can they can do that. Um, and if it's a remote happy hour that some people want to do, they can do that. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Um, it's interesting how, like, the the structure that you mentioned of people, like two or three people being on a shift together itself becomes this opportunity for conviviality and connection. And um, not just, it seems like it's not just to get the work done, but it's also contributing to the broader relations like within the um, network itself. We have a, a thing that we do in our network that is, um, it's a structure that actually came from something that we do in my research lab, which is that, we have these rotating pairings of people. So every like couple of weeks, um, people, it's sort of like a round robin kind of thing and they get paired with a different person that they've never been paired with before. And they, you know, they have each other's email addresses because we probably have like 50 people in the network and like, you know, 20 who show up to the calls, but also a lot of other people who can't come to the calls for various reasons like work or access and stuff. And so that way people have a chance to have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with one other person and ask the question of like, how can I support your projects? How can I be in solidarity with you? Um, and it's been really cool to see what like what stuff comes out of those pairings that then becomes part of the projects that we take on because people have the ability to just like have a face-to-face -face digital um, conversation with someone or sometimes over the phone uh, just with someone else about something that's related and important to them. I really love um, that idea of people connecting one-on-one -on -one and building relationships that way. I might take that idea. Yeah, feel Thank free. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a good facilitation technique um, also. 
Um, okay, so uh, another reason I'm really excited to talk to you is that you've been doing research on disability in public space. And um, this is an area that's also very much on my mind and in my research. And I've been thinking so much um, during this time of isolation about what is even happening with the concept of public space and what is the future of public spaces and how may some of the um you know the opportunities and also the things that we're being forced to do because of covid um how might those shift what the experience of public space is like for disabled people moving forward so i don't know if you have any like what are your thoughts about public space right now i my work on public space um kind of comes out of, well, it comes out of your tradition, which I'm calling a tradition because it's uh, your work has been groundbreaking. Um, but it also comes out of the tradition of um, Eric Klinenberg and um, other um, folks who write about um, social infrastructure and why um, social infrastructure, which is uh, things like parks and libraries and other um, places that are truly um, public, um, are really essential for democracy. And um, I think public space is more essential than ever right now, uh, especially in cities, because um, right here in Philadelphia, the one place where you can go outside of your home right now and um, really feel a sense of respite um, is your public park um, and um, whether you um, whether your park is accessible to you whether you feel um, like your public park belongs to you whether you you know it's it's close to you or you have to get on transit which is now obviously um, kind of a no-go for many folks um, it like it's it's critical and so I think the fact that um, public space has kind of winnowed so much, but um, really public parks have become kind of this one option for us, um, makes it even more important to think about. Um, and um, I think that, you know, going forward, we have an opportunity to, I just, I feel like people, mostly like able-bodied middle-class white people, I hear them talk about like, I can't wait to quote unquote, go back to normal. And I'm like, well, uh, that's not happening uh, because there's no, like everything is gonna be different after this. And, um, I think there's so much possibility in shaping what that different world is. And I think that public space for so long has been designed um, in, in many ways um, within, you know, an able body, you know, framework and what you term in, in building access as a, a, a normate template, you know, when, and when, um, designers and planners and other folks think about, you know, and imagine the public that in, that embodies that public space. Um, they think about someone who's able-bodied. Um, um, and so going forward, you know, 
I think we need to understand that the way we design public space needs to change because in this moment, like, and in future moments like this one, because this isn't the last pandemic that's ever going to happen, public space is more critical than ever. Like it's, uh, it's essential right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm struck by this um, image of like white non-disabled people in parks and things like that. I don't know if you've been seeing these photos of um, people in Manhattan, not social distancing and being in the park and being outside. And, um, you know, the, the mayor of New York has been called out a lot because there's actually quite a bit of policing of black people in public parks and public spaces in other neighborhoods. Um, and I'm thinking about how like, you know, these, this sort of securitization of space sort of thing has, um, it's not new, it's been happening. Um, it's part of the racist structure of our cities. And also there's a court, like accordingly, um, in addition to all of the structural reasons why disabled people are excluded from public spaces, now there are these sorts of things that are almost like invisible or illegible. You know, it's like the air, we don't know what's in the air. And so we don't go outside. Um, mm -hmm. And we don't know which other people may present kind of a life and death sort of situation for us like if we're chronically ill or we if we have like respiratory stuff or whatever um and so i wonder if some of our ways of talking about environmental barriers may shift and i'm also just really curious to see if there's ever um going to be a reinvigoration of public space as like a thing because um mm. you know it seems like a lot of the conversations i've been hearing are about things like the need to contain spaces um, and the need to, mm. um, you know, contain people or, you know, and this is, I've been like trying to watch with the urban planners, especially the ones that are drinking the new urbanist Kool-Aid, like the, what they're saying about this, because, you know, their, their thing forever has been like car culture is bad, suburban housing structures are bad. Um, and in some, some cases, those may be what is, uh, minimizing risk for certain people um, in a very class and class and race racialized sort of way. Um, so yeah, this is just like, I think that the whole concept of public space is going to be rethought and the way that we talk about the norms of who gets to access it are also going to be shifted and changed. Yeah, I think you're right. And just kind of going back to something that you mentioned about um, folks who have asthma or who have um, other um, like upper respiratory illnesses or um, like chronic illnesses of that nature. Um, I think that um, this time has made me and I hope um, it has made me rethink and I hope it will um, kind of lead to a broader rethinking in our community about um, how folks who are um, affected by, you know, chronic um, asthma and other respiratory diseases um, are part of disability community um, and need to be um, included in conversations that we're having about disability justice um, and, and disability identity. Um, here in Philadelphia, we have uh, 
a ref an oil refinery um, that is located um, in an area that is um, surrounded by a community that's um, primarily um, populated by um, folks of color and the rate of um, asthma, COPD, um, and related cancers um, is extremely high in um, that community um, compared to the rest of the city and is, you know, way higher um, than what is like quote-unquote normal in the population. Um, and the folks in, that in those communities are obviously at super high risk for COVID, um, but I think that, um, you know, the, the way that the primary organization in that um, neighborhood working on those issues, which is called Philly Thrive, um, the way that they, you know, talk about these issues is not with like a politicized disability identity, um, but I think that it's really important for folks who are working in, you know, disability justice or disability studies to start thinking about how do we, you know, work with communities and, and with individuals and, and organizations um, that are dealing with these kinds of issues and, and um, because, um, you know, we are, uh, we need to be working together. So that's something that I've been thinking about a lot. And I think that, um, is going to be really important for public space going forward because um, it's going to be a key part of like access needs and, and access considerations. Mm, yeah, that's so important. Um, thank you for flagging that too as an opportunity for our disability justice conversations to expand around this and to think about public space more directly. Are there any uh, final thoughts you'd like to leave us with or um, ideas about how folks who are listening to this or reading the transcript can support your projects, like your mutual aid project, for example? Yeah, I think um, the best thing to do is to find and, and plug into what's happening in your community. Um, really just start there. There is the website called mutualaidhub.org, um, which has a searchable map of uh, mutual aid projects across um, the United States. Um, and I think it's just really good to start local. Um, and if, you know, you aren't seeing um, something near you, start talking with folks who are in disability community, maybe reach out to your local center for independent living and see um, how they're working with folks and how you might be able to support. Um, you know, for our um, network, um, if you're local to Philadelphia, we're at um, mutualaidphilly.com um, and our hotline is 215-798-0222. You can call us or text us um, in English, Spanish, or English, Spanish, or Mandarin Chinese. Um, and I think also this is just an important time to um, kind of hold um, or try to like hold all of the, um, both the like challenges and fears and also the like opportunities and joys that are happening in disability community. Um, you know, there are a lot of folks who are afraid um, and, and very concerned rightly so about um, eugenics and um, the 
um, denial of care to folks in, in disability community, um, especially folks who are not living independently um, in the community and are in like long-term care facilities. Um, but then I also think that there are incredible opportunities right now for organizing and even just on a personal level, you know, folks whose, um, you know, relationships to access and to um, time and um, all of those things are, are changing and being reframed um, for the better. So um, it's also exciting and I think um, this moment is not like there isn't one narrative or one experience um, and I think that's like true of disability at large but it's very true for this moment. Thank you, Embry, so much. It's been wonderful to talk to you and to learn from you. And um, I look forward to continuing these conversations. Thank you. It's wonderful to talk with you. You've been listening to Contra, a podcast about disability, design justice, and the life world. Contra is a production of the Critical Design Lab. Learn more about our projects at mapping-access.com. And be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. If you've enjoyed this episode, please head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. The Contra Podcast is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share-alike, international 3.0 license. That means you can remix, repost, or recycle any of the content as long as you cite the original source, aren't making money, you don't change the credits, and you share it under the same license.